Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Now my hairy mai. I'm John McDonald Kiora and welcome into the Hut Zone on Thursday the 9th of December. The Hut Zone is Wellington Access Radio's weekly look into the stories, history, people, poems and music that make the Hut Valley community. In tonight's hour we meet a student artist, Sean Robinson, who is studying at the Learning Connection and displaying some of his work in their end of term exhibition. We hear more local history in our series from Upper Hutt Libraries, talking to Isabel Charles JP on her community service, and history from Days Bay with a long-time resident, Mary Hunt. And this week's short story is a Christmas carol reading from Eastbourne actor William Kersher. We have an original poetry reading by former Eastbourne resident Roma Potiki, Christmas in Windy Tree City. And there's plenty of local festive music tonight from the Hutt Valley Singers. And then from four Upper Hutt based musicians, Mark Southern, Gareth Barker, Rene Maurice. And to start the show off, we'll go with a popular online pianist, John Gwilliam, with his medley of Christmas carols.
And that was John Quilliam on the piano. Right, let's go back in time to a 1993 interview made with the late Mary Hunt of Days Bay. Mary was born in 1901, the daughter of James Walter Chapman Taylor, the well-known architect. Now another male voice joins the interview at times, probably Mary's son. And this is part two of her two-part story. You must remember this, a kiss is still a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. Be on holiday and uh, enjoy the holiday with us. Mm-hmm. And for the second three weeks, he would commute on the Cobar or the Muratai and go back to work at Sagasan and uh, we used to have great times over here. I remember the Royal Pictures Theatre. Yes. Because it was the first time in my life, I was about 10 years of age, that I, was ever, that I ever went to uh, a movie at night time. Ah, uh, yes. And I can still remember the name of the movie. It was Nelson Eddy and Janet McDonald in Naughty Marietta. Ah, uh, yes. Do you remember that one? Yes, that was a good one. Oh, yes, in the Royal Theatre, uh, all we old residents, we had our permanent seats for Saturday night, and you, you only rang up if you were not going to use them, and um, it was like a club, because all the old residents all had the same seats and we all met. And at half time, there was a rush out to the ice cream store for the ice creams. That's, that's all I can think of. Yeah, and all the men folk had a cigarette. Oh, yes, I suppose. Yes, yes. And the policeman was always standing out on the street there. Yes. Oh, remember the owner was Mr. Fisher? I... Remember him? Mary? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, he was the mayor when we first came over here, Mr. Fisher. You know the little, little antique shop uh, in Muratai Road about opposite the police station? I understand yes. that used to be a grocery shop. Uh, owned by Mr. Wise, yes. who was later mayor. He was yeah, later he? mayor, yeah. and he lived in the house opposite. He built that two-story house opposite there. And also uh, where, the, where the shearers are now. Yes. Yes. He also baked um, bread uh, behind that shop. Hmm. I, I wasn't over there when the shop was opened. I've only I been see. over there once or twice. I see. And the last time I went... We walked up to come out at Muratai Park. Yes. I had my sister-in-law and her husband who are from Auckland, and she's a great native plant woman. Right, She's written books galore on it. She's now revising her first book yes. that she wrote on native plants. And um, we lost the track. Oh. We went in, it was going to be my daughter's birthday, and so we picked up the cousins that lived in the bay, yes. young girls, and we all went over there at 10 in the morning. We came out at 7 at night. Oh, <laughs> you must have been we came out well lost. We Muratai Park. Oh, yes. Our husbands were um, motoring up and down the streets looking for us and were very worried because we'd got into them over there. We didn't get lost exactly, but it took us a long time to find the right track to oh, come out and we and then coming down that steep hill, I was in bed for about three days. 
Oh, yes. I was aching so much and so sore. Yes. I said, I'll never go back there unless I go on an aeroplane. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was beautiful. Yeah. What's it like today? Have you been? Uh, I haven't been out for 12 months, but mm. the, there's nothing at Butterfly Creek now no. I mean, uh, in the 20 years that I've been here. But I remember it as a kid, when I was about 10 mm. years of age, uh, but that would be back in 1936, and uh, we came over each year at Christmas time, and it was a beautiful place. Mm. Beautiful lawns, yeah. better than the bowling club lawns. Yes. Uh, and a man by the name of Carrington, I think, was running a little shop there, and he used to come over each day during the week with a 40-pound pack or 60-pound pack of uh, soft drink bottles uh, each day so he didn't have enough for the weekend. The following week, he'd carry back the empties and bring out more bottles. And they had ice cream there, too. How they worked out, I don't know. In those days, the boys, the trampers used to come over, you know, to go over to Wainui Amata, yes. over the hills there, and yes. they used to go over through Butterfly. That's right. And a track out to Wainui. Yes. And mm-hmm. um, Munt Cottrell, you know, the carriers, the carriers in Wellington, yes. well, Thelma Munt was a friend of mine, a school friend of mine, you see. Yes. And they had a car. We didn't have a car, but they had a car. And so they thought they'd take me for a drive. And we came round here. And the road was uh, being sort of formed. It was all river boulders. And there were just two wheel marks, you know, where the cars fitted in. Mary, was that 1914? Yes, 1914, 15. Yes. And we came round here on this Sunday afternoon. Of course, the car was an open car. You know, you could put up if it was raining and Thelma and I sat in the back seat and it was one of our windy days and we were scared we were going to be blown out of the car and we were sitting on the floor <laughs> but I've never forgotten that was the high boulders you know either side of us and in, in the middle and just these two ruts to drive along and the car would have been an open tourer oh yes it was yes. a nice car yes that was that how do you get on if you pass somebody coming the other way? <laughs> I don't know how you'd get on if there weren't cars about in those days. But of course, in rough weather, either uh, windy uh, weather, the, the uh, water come over pretty frequently, I think. Well, I don't remember mm. that. It's just about fixed now, though, I think. Uh, Mary, can you tell us anything about the uh, boats? Applied between here and uh, Wellington. Oh, okay. Well, the Muratown. Yes. Uh, were you here in the time of the Duchess? I, I've been on the Duchess before that, you know, but yes. I, can't rem- I don't think she was on the run then. No, no. No, but the Muratown and the Cobar were. Yes. Yes, I can tell you something else. Well, one would run at seven in the morning and the other one was at eight in the morning. They would blow the siren five minutes before the boat was to leave the wharf. And we lived up on the hill and at that time, and you'd look out and you'd see people oozing out from behind trees and things. You couldn't see any household bats in it, when they come off. And the men would have a tie in one hand and a piece of toast in the other, and they'd run, <laughs> and they'd run down to catch the boat. If they missed the boat, 
They walked along the beach and there was, um, what do you call that sand that you sink into? Quicksand. Quicksand yes. down by the, where the creek came out from um, the pavilion. And sometimes they'd go down on that and sometimes they would be all right. And they'd run to go to Rona Bay because the boat was tied up at Day's Bay at night time. Yes. And then it went to Rona Bay, you see, and they'd catch the boat there. So if they were lucky in Day's Bay, the people that were on the boat would put their hands out and drag them on into the wall. And then it was only, it was one and three return in those days, one and three pence. It was threatened to go from Day's Bay to Rona Bay on the boat. And you went, you see, there was no delivery from Eastbourne. So if it was a, a very windy day like it is today, you would walk round today to Eastbourne and get your goods and come back on the boat. Walk round with the wind behind you and yes. come back on the boat on the into boat the wind. Things and vice versa for the yes. summer, you yes. see. And half the time they never even came round to the threepence. Mind it was depression days and it was a windfall if they didn't come round. I'm John McDonald, and you're in the hut zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM. And that was the late Mary Hunt in a 1993 interview on her memories of Days Bay. A big thank you to the Historical Society of Eastbourne for letting us play that interview. OK, time for some more music from the Hutt Valley Singers. Here's Carol of the Bells.
was the Hat Valley Singers and Carol of the Bells. Time to meet a local artist. Sean Robinson transferred his art studies to Lower Hutt's Learning Connection at the start of this year and is one of the students in the end of term exhibition which opens on Friday. This year's been something that I've learned. I've just for myself. I've learned that I'm uh, going towards figurative work, um, sculpting primarily. I used to do a bit of drawing, but I've come to the realization I wasn't getting any satisfaction from that compared to what I do from the sculpting. Three um, D work is where I seem to be hidden, and it's where I seem to be getting the most satisfaction from. And I'm always trying to incorporate nature in some way as well. What led you to, to enrol at the Learning Connection and Lower Hutt? Uh, there's been a number of people that have spoken to me over the years because the first two years that I did of my degree, which were two separate diplomas, uh, there's a very heavy focus on theory. Theory just didn't really seem to resonate with me very well. I didn't start art until very late in, in my career, so it was something that I needed to focus on a lot of the primary skills, the, you know, just the practical skills. Uh, with the learning connection, because there's no, there's no uh, theory behind it, everything is just all practice. So the practical side has allowed me to catch up on a lot of the uh, experience that I've missed out on over the years by starting so late. So that was something that was spoken to me by a number of people just talking to artists and fellow, fellow creatives when I was working and living in Nelson. I often said that I just wasn't probably getting enough out of the theory-based study and it was recommended for me to come over to Wellington. I was looking to do it a couple of years ago and then decided to take a year off the study and just uh, see if I had uh, enough behind me to be working in the art field. Clearly that didn't work out with uh, COVID and just with uh, the experience that I had, so I came to the realisation pretty quick that I wasn't ready. So I decided to continue the study and I found the Learning Connection to be amazing. The, the tutors are really great there, the mentors are great there, really supportive, really helpful, just so much experience with so many of them as well. They're all artists themselves. And without that sort of dogma of having to learn you know, something that happened 300 years ago in a field that may not even be relevant these days. It's, it does help to shape, you know, a lot of what we've done today, but it's just not really helping me for to gain more experience and to get those practical skills that I really needed. And that's what the Learning Connection has helped me to do. So what courses have you been doing this year? I've made the decision to only work on sculpture. So the... Three classes that I'm taking are 3D work, figurative sculpture. You don't necessarily have to work on figurative work, but the other one is um, clay for beginners. I'm looking to start working with clay. It's probably going to be my medium of choice going forward. It's something I've sort of held off. The kiln side of things just doesn't really sit too well with me. It's the unknown, and I'm a little bit concerned about doing a lot of work on something and then putting it into a kiln and it could explode. So I'm just a little bit hesitant to do that, but the more that I've spoken to people and 
just the other works and the other artists that do influence me and inspire me. A lot of them do work with clay, so it's given me that insight to go down that path. And um, the other one would also be um, 3D sculpture as well, and that's uh, just another class where you can effectively do anything you like as long as it's a 3D work. What do you think you've learnt this year at the Learning Connection? The main thing I've learnt would have been that figurative sculpture is the path that I want to take. Last year I was still, I was looking at figurative sculpture but wasn't too sure if that's what I wanted to do and then the more that I've worked on it this year, also not only with clay, I also work with wood. Um, Wood is probably my first love. I really do enjoy working with wood and I know I'll continue to work with that. Ideally, I'd probably even like to incorporate them and I'd like to also incorporate bronze in some way as well because I just feel that's timeless and that's something that can really increase the value of work. There's been a lot that the, the Learning Connection have helped with. They've, they've been really good. I've really felt like my work has come on this year. Lockdown has had its you know restrictions and it it's uh, allowed me to improvise in some ways. So what, did you, what, what do you mean by improvise? Uh, just without the access to tools, without the access to a workshop, uh, that can be very limiting. That's one of the huge benefits of studying as well. Uh, a workshop can you know, be a huge expense. Uh, just having a lot of those you know, tools available just makes things so much easier. Sometimes I've had to work around and use tools that I probably shouldn't be using to do a particular job, which can make it either more time consuming or can actually, you know, can cause errors and some of them can be amended, sometimes not. And that's a learning experience that, uh, that's certainly something that I've also learnt this year. Not sort of pushing things too far when they're not working. Just stop and leave it for a few days and Lockdown's also helped it in that respect because I've had four or five different projects going on at once. So if I feel something's not quite going as well as I was expecting or hoping, it allows me just to take some time off from that, go away, work on something else, and then come back maybe with a better idea or a, you know, a workaround for any issue that I may have had. Now you said you came into your art late in life. How late is late? Uh, mid-40s. And what, what led to that decision? Uh, I had a couple of injuries there while I was working overseas that prevented me from continuing in the role that I was working in. Uh, gave me an opportunity to return to New Zealand, which I'd always been looking to do, but just probably didn't have the, the right incentives to do it. And Why art? I mean, because you did art last, like at college, I think you'd said. <laughs> High school was the last time I did art. So what made you think art at the time? I felt I always had a bit of an understanding of spatial awareness and I was probably decent at art at school, but I was never good enough to sort of think of it as a career. But there was just a few things that led me down that path and I ended up going into one of the local institutes when I returned back to New Zealand. Uh, I went back to Christchurch where I was originally from went into one of the local institutes and had a chat with one of the tutors there just about um, doing some form of art on a computer. Uh, I was thinking about doing web design or something along those lines. And the more that I spoke with this guy, the, the more he sort of 
pushed me towards art and he goes, you really should go down to the art department and have a chat with them. So I went down there and lo and behold, the art tutor was my old high school teacher. So I thought, this is serendipity, maybe um, this is meant to be and had a good chat with him and ended up doing a six month course there. Really enjoyed it and realised that there was a possibility of a career path for me. Now you exhibited a sculpture at the um, Californian Garden Centre in the heart recently. How how do you describe that piece? That was that was something uh, when I was living in Nelson. The couple that owned the house there they had a number of pieces of driftwood just lying around in the garden, and there was one piece in particular that as soon as I looked at it, it just reminded me of like Medusa or Gaia, something along those lines. It, it was a very unique piece and it had a lot of character and I just asked them one day if they'd mind me uh, taking it and converting it into a piece of art. They were happy for me to do it and I never got around to working on it when I was in Nelson but I packed it up in the van and brought it over to Wellington and it was one of the first things I started working on earlier this year. And It's been a bit of a slow process, I've been restricted at times but it's very, very much um, nature inspired. Uh, as I said earlier, a lot of my work seems to be that way. Um, a lot of it's incorporating found, found objects as well. Um, whether or not that's something I'll continue with, I'm not too sure, but I'm definitely inspired by nature, so try to bring that into my work as much as possible. It also just highlights something for me that I'm quite passionate about with the environment and the way that the world's going. Have you got thoughts of what your next big art project's going to be? Yeah, I've... Once again, looking to figurative work. Um, I'd like to do something a little bit more life-size. Initially, I started out working with smaller pieces. I do like little intricate bits, and that's something that I do like. But the realisation is the market is probably more targeted towards larger pieces. And if I'm looking to make a career out of it, then larger pieces is probably more viable. Mother Nature, Gaia... And uh, it seems to be a common theme in my work. I'd like to bring in something like that, um, a larger clay piece maybe. Um, with clay, you can be quite restricted in the size of the kiln. And obviously, I don't want to be starting out too elaborate with uh, my first pieces, but we'll see what happens. I may end up doing that. Um, quite often, my experiments end up becoming my final pieces, simply because it's just the way that I work. And it seems to be working out for the best part, so I'll continue to probably work that way and everyone works slightly different and it seems to be the way that works for me. You've got another year at the Learning Connection. Correct, that's, yes. that's the plan. Yeah. Yep. Next year's uh, the final year and that's level, level seven. The best way to follow your work, Sean, where, where can people do that? Uh, I currently have an Instagram account that's set up just for the current work that I'm doing. Uh, once I look to diversify and go into other works like, like the clay, I may bring up another Instagram page, but the current one is uh, metamorphous underscore sculpture. And that's just a little bit of a play on the, the nature-inspired work that I'm doing at the moment. Now you've got an end-of-term exhibition. What's involved in the exhibition? For myself and three fellow students, we're all doing the exhibition for the Level 6. 
With the level six, we uh, we're full control of everything ourselves. We're curating the room. We so what sort of stuff is going to be on display? There's two fellow students who I also study with. Um, both of them are doing primarily. They're doing paintings. Suzanne also does a little bit of assemblage work as well. And then we have one other student who I've never actually met. He um, studies studies online. He's uh, just brought in the one piece there, which is actually a really amazing piece. Uh, that's a, a large carving that'll be hanging over the entrance to the, to the room that we're, we're going to be exhibiting. There may be a couple of other little sculpture works as well that may be brought in as well. We've got a brand new set up there at the Learning Connection. The exhibition room has all just been remodelled over the, probably the last four or five months now. Are other students also exhibit? Yeah. yeah, so the other levels are also, they have their their own room. Uh, it's all within the same building. That's curated by um, somebody that we've just brought in. Um, Sarah's only just started with us recently and she'll be doing all that side of things. And what sort of artwork are the other years doing? There seems to be quite a bit of painting Painting and sculpting seems to be very popular. There's also a lot of print making in that as well. But they do lots of bronzes and jewellery in the yeah. past, is what I remember. And a lot of that sort of work, the jewellery work and the, the bronze work and that, we need to be on site for that. How long is the exhibition on for? To the 15th, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day, I believe. Finally then, Sean, your words to listeners thinking about coming along to the student art exhibition at the Learning Connection, what words of encouragement would you say? It'd just be really great to see a lot of people come along and support the local art scene. I wasn't really aware of the art scene previously because it just wasn't something that I was involved in. When I got to Nelson, I thought that that had a, quite a big art scene. And then people said, wait until you get to Wellington and you'll notice a big difference. I'm John McDonald, and you're in the hut zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM. And that was Sean Robinson sharing his creative story. And you can see his and other students' artwork at the Learning Connection, 182 Eastern Hut Road, Titer. And the exhibition opens on the 10th of December, and it runs through to the 15th. Okay, time for our weekly dose of hut poetry. This week's poem is read by Trentham's Arlene Croft. Arlene Croft and this poem is from the Angus End Pub Poets Collection. It's called Christmas in Windy Tree City and it's by Roma Potiki. Everywhere is lit up, Cacaldi's flags are flying, little bee people rush along the pavement, surge at the lights, into the stores with gold and white and red and green and music CDs promising a white Christmas. Christmas and the Queen's pictures and the Virgin Mary and our own saint and a papal visit looming. And lights so bright, neon and car indicators and pub lights and headlights and the glow of electric Christmas candles. And my heart is darker than the reindeer pretending to prance on top of the building, shortly to be demolished in front of my eyes in daylight. 
Think I'll go rescue my car from a WCC parking warden. Remove myself to the beach where Christmas is a vague concept, having much less influence than the in and out of tidal festivities in Windy Tree City. It's the season. And it was Roma Potocki's Christmas in Windy Tree City Palm. Okay, time for some more festive music. Here's Mark Southern and All I Want for Christmas is You. The one life for Christmas There's just one thing I need Don't care about those presents Underneath the Christmas tree I just want you for my home More than you could ever know Make my wish come true You know that all I want For Christmas is you I won't ask for much this Christmas I won't even ask for snow I'm just gonna keep on waiting Underneath the mistletoe There's no sense in having stockings They're upon the fireplace Cause Santa, he won't make me happy With the toy on Christmas Day I just want you here tonight Hold on to me so tight Yo, I cannot do Shining so bright, be everywhere. And the sound of children's laughter fills the air. Everyone is singing. I can hear those sleigh bells ringing. Santa, won't you bring me the one I really love? Won't you please bring my baby to me? I don't want a lot for Christmas. This is all I'm asking for No, I just want to see my baby Standing right outside my door Cause I just want you for my own More than you will ever know To make my wish come true You know that all I want For Christmas And that was Upper Hutt musician Mark Southern. Okay, let's hear part eight in our heritage series from Upper Hutt Libraries, looking at the life of a former local council politician, JP, and marriage celebrant, Isabel Charles. The interview is for the Upper Hutt local 
History Project, Isabel May Charles. The date is Tuesday the 7th of November, the year 2000. The interviewer is Sue Kenny. The interview is being recorded at 1 Kansas Grove, Totra Park, Upper Hutt. Well, good morning, Isabel, and um, thank you for allowing me to come back again today. We finished yesterday about talking about um, your interest in the health and, and, and in the community. From where I'm sitting, you are a leading force involved in a lot of new new agencies setting up in, in the Apart area. Well, it was just really my good fortune to be in the area mm. at the time when all of these things were coming into being. Mm. In some cases, being invited to participate. Some cases, seeing the need for something or other. Mm. Things. But then, of course, Upper Hutt itself has often been one of the first, and in some cases, the first to pioneer various community facilities for the residents of the Upper Valley. Uh, for example, the Upper Hutt Citizens Advice Bureau, which was originally named the Community Advisory Service, right. because one of the steering committee members reckoned the title Citizens Advice Bureau, as used in Britain during the war and after, because that's where Citizens Advice Bureau started mm. during the war, and they were bureaus that were there for, to advise people on food rationing, how to use their coupons. If they were um, bombed out in one area, they came into another area, there was a Citizens Advice Bureau they could go to for advice. And so the concept was uh, uh, mooted here mm. in New Zealand. This particular member didn't want it to be called Citizens Advice Bureau because he said it conjured up visions of the French Revolution with all the old women sitting knitting while they were beheading the royalty. So um, eventually, of course, other bureaus came into being called the Citizens Advice Bureau and so they changed back to the name. And I believe we were the first to provide an actual refuge house mm -hmm. Uh, for victims of domestic violence. Other areas only had counselling services to start with. And uh, it was also, among, uh, perhaps also among the first to set up a community health centre. And of course there were a lot of other people involved in all these projects other than myself. For instance, in the health centre, there was Nan Caldwell, although she lived in Wainui Amata. She was very interested in getting health centres set up and of course they eventually got one in Wainui Amata. Um, there was Stuart McCaskill, Pauline Richardson from Plunkett Society, doctors, Dr Higginbottom, other doctors and nurses uh, with the uh, health centre. And we were among the first areas to have, a commun to have community service officers, uh, starting with Mary Jane Rivers, whose mm -hmm. idea it was in the beginning regarding having a refuge for victims of mm -hmm. domestic violence. And she's been succeeded by other enthusiastic and capable office, officers who have either initiated or have helped to initiate various projects. And plus many uh, members of the community themselves mm. who have supported and given of their time and money to provide and sustain these facilities and often banding together to send deputation to the powers that be. Mm. There was uh, uh, deputations from the Healthcare Association of which I was usually a member, to the various health ministers that we, health ministers kept changing before we really got our health centre. Mm. And so we'd have to start from the beginning again and go to the next health minister and explain what we wanted. And the residents of Upper Hutt can be proud of the many achievements of a relatively small community. Mm. 
which has often had to fight to be recognised by other larger authorities as an entity in its own right and not an appendage to Wellington or Lower mm. Hutt. And like coming back to the refuge, as I said before, we had men involved on our management committee, our first management committee. We had a chief inspector of police. We had a male solicitor. Mm. The males and females have all mm. joined together mm. in helping to provide these various facilities mm. within Upper Hutt, mm. which it could be proud. Mm. Mm. And it's a, it's a community that in times of stress comes together, being mm. a small community. Mm. And um, a lot of that work is unpaid work. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes, there was no thought of payment in the early days in any of these projects. And it's only in, in later years that such as, uh, like, Family Refuge received some government money. Mm. And then, of course, you've got people that really came in at times just to earn money. Mm. When the first early days in council, were you paid when you first went on the uh, No, 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 no. no. Uh, it was with the Hutt County, it was a county town committee. We weren't paid. Later on, we were paid, I think it was the princely sum of about six, uh, six pounds per meeting, but no other expenses mm. or anything like mm. that. You know, in a lot of these organisations, it wasn't predominantly women. I mean, I always associate community oh, work with women. No, but. no, no. There were a lot of, quite a lot of men mm. um, on uh, all of these committees that I've been involved in. Nearly always, there were all men, mm. all men involved. Mm. As I say, even in the family refuge, and uh, and the, the, the men have been very supportive. Mm. You've got several awards, Isabel, and. First of all, is the, the British National War Service Medal, which mm. I think we spoke about at the beginning of the tape. I think you probably, yes, mm. I think we did. Mm. Uh, yes, well, that, that, that was for uh, war, sir, you know, for war service during the actual medal, uh, says from 1939 to 1960, mm. which is covering wars which I wasn't involved in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, doing, doing, uh, various aspects of war service, mm. such as the police force and uh, the women's auxiliary air force. Mm. And in 1966, the New Zealand Justice of the Peace? That's correct, yes. Yes, I was uh, nominated by uh, the MP of that time, Mr Ron Bailey, uh, because I'd already been involved with quite a number of community projects. And uh, he happened to be present at a uh, meeting a public meeting regarding the formation of the Ferguson Intermediate School. And uh, when I got home, I found he'd rang my husband and said that he was going to recommend me to be a Justice of the Peace, which really is what they call a poor man's honour. <laughs> <laughs> and, and why would that be called a poor man's honour? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> people get made sirs and dames and all that for... <laughs> <laughs> quite often for just providing money for for projects and things like that, mm. <laughs> whereas the, the, those on lesser incomes actually worked for, <laughs> for projects. And where was that presented to you? Um, at Upper Hutt Courthouse. First of all, I, ha I was interviewed by a member of the police force. There was a delay in the fact that they had to check on my record in the UK to make sure that I didn't have any um, charges against me there, mm. that I hadn't been involved in anything illegal either there or here. 
and so it took nearly a year before I, I was actually appointed and then I had to go up for an interview before one of the judges at the court in Upper Hutt. Then I was notified that I, by the Governor General, that, uh, by the Minister of Justice, that I had been accepted as a Justice of the Peace, be accepted by mm. a judge uh, at the Upper Hutt Court. And uh, the judge at that time decided that uh, he would uh, do the awarding in front of a court meeting so that the public could see mm. how justices were appointed. Mm. And um, Joe Knox was uh, one of the other people that was made a Justice of the Peace at the same time as myself. Mm. And because she had been involved in, in quite a number of things, she was involved in the citizen, setting up the Citizens Advice Bureau. And so we were sworn in together uh, in front of the public, mm -hmm. which quite often doesn't happen. It must have been a very proud moment. It was, yes, yes, yes. it was. I'm John McDonald and you're in the Hut Zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and that was the late Isabel Charles talking to Sue Kenny as part of Upper Hut Library's Year 2000 Audio History Project. A big thank you to the library in letting us play that interview. Part 9 airs next week and you can always Google Upper Hut Recollections to find out more in their audio history archive. Okay, to continue a Christmas tradition of ours in the Hut Zone, the festive season just wouldn't be complete without a reading of a Christmas carol from our favourite Eastbourne actor. Silent night, holy night, all is Hi there, John. My name is William Kircher, and this is a reading of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. This is the last bit of A Christmas Carol. Okay, so this is when Scrooge has turned around. A Merry Christmas, Bob, said Scrooge with an earnestness that could not be mistaken as he clapped him on the back. A Merry Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, that I've given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavour to assist your struggling family, and we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop. Make up the fires before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all, and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, as good a man as the good old city knew, or any other good old city knew, town or borough, in the good old world. 
and some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he let them laugh, and little he heeded them. His own heart laughed, and that was quite enough for him. And he had no further intercourse with spirits, but he lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any man alive possessed the knowledge. And may that truly be said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Jesus, I'm John McDonald and you're in the hut zone on Wellington Access Radio 106.1 FM and that was Eastbourne's William Kersher reading Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol with some Rene Maurice singing as well. But sadly that must mean we're running out of time for this week's show. A big thank you to all our guests today and thank you for listening to the show and for supporting Wellington Access Radio. If you have a local hut story, musician or poetry suggestion then please make contact, we'd love to hear from you. Facebook message me or email the team and our email is thehutzone at outlook.co.nz Now you can listen again to the show as a podcast on the Hutzone pages of accessradio.org.nz or check out my Facebook page for links to the individual interviews and my Facebook name is John McDonald NZ. Keep safe, mask up, vaccinate and wash your hands whatever the traffic light colour And tune in to 106.1 FM or listen online Thursday at 5pm for the next Hut Zone show. Let's go out with some singing from Upper Hut's Gareth Barker and Oh Holy Night. Hairi Ra.
program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.